0: Hello and welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast. I'm Walt Freeman and I am joined by my colleagues and friends William Ivers. Hello. And Andrew Martino. Hello. And today it is our great privilege to be discussing the film Dr. Strangelove, subtitled Or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. What a a great classic dark comedy satire commentary that really holds up well today, I would say. Um, so I have some information for you on the film to get us started and a few pieces of uh, trivia to sprinkle in there, courtesy of Internet Movie Database. Uh, the film was released in 1964, directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was written by Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, based on his novel Red Alert, although George was not happy that they went in a satirical direction with his piece. Um, Interesting to note that Terry Southern also was a co-writer for the film Easy Rider. The film stars Peter Sellers in a triple role as group captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Dr. Strangelove. Also starring George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson, Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano, Slim Pickens as Major King Kong, and this is also noticeable for being the first screen appearance by James Earl Jones as a member of the ethnically diverse crew of the bomber. Uh, just a couple of quick interesting facts to throw out there before we dig in, if you guys are up for it, just a few. Um, first of all, this was the only Best Picture nominee at the Academy Awards that year that didn't win a single award. It was up for a few. Um, The film actually led to changes in policy to ensure that it could not happen in real life, especially the part where Mandrake is trying to reach the White House through a payphone. And lastly, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but a sequel was actually being planned between Kubrick and Southern called Son of Strangelove, and Kubrick wanted Terry Gilliam to direct. Gilliam was unaware of this, and when Terry Southern died, they found some extensive plans among his notes. And Gilliam said, "I would have loved yeah. to direct the sequel to Doctor Strange." So, gentlemen, that is my uh, trivia. There's a lot more, but uh, we want to get into talking about it. So, yeah, initial thoughts. Yeah,
1: thanks for that, Walt. Um, I guess for, off the bat, for me, I'd have to say this is the greatest movie that I have seen. The least, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's one of the greatest classic films that's beloved and legendary and even though I hate the word iconic (laughs) Uh, but I haven't seen it nearly as many times as I I guess upon recently seeing it again now wish that I had I mean uh, it's been a while it's been probably since college or not too long after that since I've seen it and I regret not watching this you know often over the last few years um so i'm really thankful that you're hosting because you're the uh, you're the go-to guy for this i think uh for this episode and i'm actually learning a lot and um so for me my initial reactions and again i'm going off uh
0: a recent viewing after 20 years of not seeing it okay so oh it's been that long it's been that long oh my goodness See, see i find uh I find many reasons to show this film. You show it as a, a social commentary, you show it as an example of satire. And I like to show it as an example of um, existentialism in the myth of Sisyphus, uh, the, yeah. the never ending cycle. Yeah. Um, initial thoughts from you, Andrew?
2: Uh, like Bill, I haven't seen this in quite some time. And I do think it goes back to college seeing this or, or just after. Uh, I, I, I'd forgotten what a good film this is. Just, <laughs> it's outrageously funny and But, there are tragic elements to it, and i just i think it 's more relevant today actually than when than when it came out in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four uh, obviously it 's got the cold war era um, aspect to it, but you know that has seemed to come around again in in, in some of the uh, the things that we 're witnessing with with putin 's russia and and even with China and talk of the space race and this has all been renewed. It's like we're back in time uh, in 2021. We've gone back in time a little bit and are re reimagining and reliving the Cold War. So I was especially, especially, especially appreciative of, of watching this again.
0: I, I think it's yeah. still relevant. I mean, the mindset. Uh, is you know of of this constant, never ending cycle of build up and threat, and build up and threat. And uh, I mean, I don't want to get ahead and talk about the end of the film, but it just uh, you know we, we're not that far afield from it. And even though we don't necessarily have nuclear annihilation on the forefront of our thoughts, it, it still looms over us. Mm-hmm. That's true.
1: Yeah, some things never change. Right. And I think this movie really <laughs> kind of hits upon that. Uh, one of my initial re- re- uh, reflections after seeing this again, after so long, uh, kind of rolling with the relevancy theme here, this movie feels like not just in the top, in, in the subject matter and in the relevance of the subject matter, the feel of the film, the tone of the film, the production of the film, even though it's black and white, still feels like this could have been released yesterday. You know, it's <laughs> it's just so modern, so relevant. And in, in many ways, the acting, you know, the acting is just, so new you know so new and you know i just for me uh, it's just so interesting to to see how kubrick brilliantly goes about this he makes an anti-war film that's so powerful so poignant and it's such a statement he does so by showing us not so much the actual horrors on the field you know um he doesn't really show us the carnage he doesn't show us all that stuff like many anti-war films do he shows us the horrors behind the scenes, right? So he shows us, you know, these these masters of wars, you know, masters of war just far from the fronts, in offices, in high security locations, uh, the Pentagon. And it's kind of like the, it's the horror that orchestrates the horror is, is kind of what I got out of it. And it's just, it's very interesting how, it's like a behind the scenes look, uh, an anti-war film behind the scenes, if you will.
2: Yeah. I, I, I especially appreciative of that, Bill, I think, for me, it's about the absurdity of it, right? There's, there's an absurd nature to this, and in, in both the absurdity that we find ourselves in this situation, that it's being characterized and carried out by buffoons, right? From the president all the way down to to the to the um, the Russian ambassador and and the generals, and it, they're all buffoons, and our future is at stake. At this it, it could be Kafkaesque in a way. Um, but it's much more, it's, it's just, it really is that anti-war film, as you said, Bill, but with this powerful message that comes through in humor rather than tragedy, I think. Yes.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's very, it's almost clinical. Like I, I would say that the film structure is bureaucratic. E- each of these yeah. characters is ensconced in their world, whether they are in the office with Ripper or whether they're in the cockpit of the plane or whether they're in the war room. Um, all of them are locked into their own sort of ideology and one hand doesn't know what the other one is doing. And, and Ripper who goes off of his nut and orders this attack because of fluoridation um, is, you know, ensconced in his own mind in a sense. Um, and, And I actually, I read, this is fascinating to me, but the John Birch society an ultra conservative society in the, I can't remember if it was the late 50s or early 60s, but right before this um, film had launched uh, an aggressive conspiracy theory about fluor- floor, fluoridization, mm-hmm. and people were really worried about it. Well,
1: paranoia will do that to you. Um, I, I kind of came across a John Lennon quote here. I think that sort of hits upon many of the uh, – the things that kubrick is getting at here uh, the quote here you might have heard it before actually he it's quote our society is run by insane people for for insane <laughs> objectives i think we're being run by maniacs for ma- maniacal ends and i think i'm liable to be put away as insane for expressing that <laughs> that's what's insane about it and uh it's, it's not just the absurdity but i think i mean uh, i think one is okay so adding to the absurdity there's an absurd indifference with these leaders here there's an absurd indifference that these leaders show that's you know so horrible that i think we're forced to laugh at it you know we're forced to laugh at this absurdity and i think that's brilliant just uh, a brilliant way of getting this message across you know because um you know i mean comedy deflects but i think this kind of comedy it deflects but it also confronts at the same time and it's just a weird phenomenon how it does that so you know like so many people in power these are characters that are so aloof and, and so far removed from the lives of actual people that uh you know humanity doesn't really seem to matter too much to them anymore they're so far removed from it they're so powerful they're so insulated you know and war has become kind of a a game and i'm not sure if you guys caught this but i th- you know when i was watching the war room scenes it seems like the you know the digital imagery that looms over their their heads in the pentagon it kind of suggests this like surreal gigantic electronic board game yes. that, that they're playing you know they don't have to see these people that they're making decisions for you know they're it's it's uh that's part of the absurdity for me
2: i think that goes back to what you said earlier about indifference and if it's anything that that dooms us to annihilation it's going to be our increasing indifference towards one another uh, towards the environment and things like that that as we become increasingly indifferent maybe that's part of evolution and one day we will uh wipe ourselves out from that indifference
0: well george c scott's character was loosely based on a very aggressive general at the time his name escapes me but his famous comment was if we engage in a nuclear war with the russians and there's two americans left and one russian left we've won Hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah
0: yeah and it's the technology you know the
1: technology allows us to you know sadly enough kill lots of people from a distance yeah you know and and that i think it's harder to do you know it's harder to make the decisions when there's when you stop looking at the others as people you know and technology is is kind of doing that to, you know in the form of social media as well and um the isolated nature of our lives you know and i think these characters here the leaders are they're just so aloof to to the point where it's unfortunately kind of fun. It's funny. It's so, it's so well, absurd that it's funny.
0: You laugh lest you weep. <laughs> yes, yes. Is, is it, I mean, in, I don't know of anyone who would build a gun who doesn't want to fire it. Mm-hmm. And so we have the Russians with their doomsday device and the Americans with the, with the B-52s and then the both of them with the, the missile silos. And at some point someone wants to use these and, you know, in our own real history, we've come pretty close and, uh, and and you know, America was one a country that did use it in World War II to, to devastating results and controversial decision making there. But um that's that's to me the 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 best part of this film. I guess the word is absurd more than comedy that you guys have used a couple of times because it is crazy and yet it's it's not this isn't science fiction. This isn't a fantasy. This is all based on, you know, actual scenarios, actual um available technology more or less. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and yes, we did indeed employ Nazi scientists after world war two right. um, to do it. So I want to uh, throw out here or change the topics here uh, real quickly because, because it's a comedy, unfortunately, and I, and this bothers me greatly acting in comedy is almost never fully acknowledged. There's some great comedies where people should have won Academy awards or been recognized for the skill. I think anyone can, pretend to cry I think anyone can pretend to be angry but I don't think a lot of people can genuinely be funny Mm -hmm. and here there we're not talking about with the exception of Peter Sellers really a group of comedians I mean actors Sterling Hayden Keenan Wynn um, and the others are not known for their comedy Sellers was but uh, and and so uh, any thoughts on the acting in the film?
1: Well, if if this film was miscast in the in the tone of the performances were wrong, or even slightly off, the film wouldn't have worked. Right. You know, um, I mean, you could probably say say that for most scripts, but this this film could have been a total miss. Uh, For me, I I just think it's interesting too that a lot of the characters are played straight. You know, for example, uh, as you mentioned, Sterling Hayden, uh, Jack D. Ripper, I, I, I think. It's kind of an interesting place to start with this guy, you know, played, played brilliantly, you know, just so completely straight. At least that's how I read it, you know, like he's right out of a typical war flick. You know, if you sort of inserted him in some John Wayne war movie, he probably wouldn't have had the change of performance in the slightest, right? Um, but what makes it funny is Seller's reaction around him, right? Which is classic, you know, uh, comedy. We have a straight man and you have a, you know, the re- the guy who's sort of, the the character you know the character so i i think the idea that the like for example the chain of command like during the the scenes with um ripper and mandrake i just i just i got it, it was so funny the idea that the chain of command forces mandrake to just be completely subordinate to this lunatic and there's nothing he could do about it you know this guy's clearly insane and i think sellers plays that brilliantly just um but for me i think um i just it's an interesting choice to just sort of say okay Play this character straight; it's just going to be funny in the context of, again, the absurdity and the
2: the actors around him. And George C. Scott is another actor who who is a very serious actor, and and he looks like he's really enjoying himself in this film. Uh, that he, I mean, he's playing it up, but he doesn't play it up so it comes off inauthentic. Uh, you know, there's something slightly crazy about all of the people in this film, uh, and I think that whether that's Kubrick's direction, or or the fact that the actors were are playing up and feeding off one another, or some combination, really, as you said, Bill works well. Yep. Yep.
0: I find it ironic, though, because again, he, Peter Sellers and I agree with you on the uh, Sterling Hayden and and Sellers as Mandrake scenes. Hayden's quiet logic—you almost believe him <laughs> in a sense when he's explaining fluoridation and bodily fluids—and and yet Sellers, even though he's he's character. Characterizing some of the officers that he served with in the RAF, he he never takes that particular bit over the top. He never pulls the focus away. His his reactions are for Sellers a bit understated. Yeah, um, and we don't, and even his his Merkin Muffley, his president is fairly understated. Um, and yet, we do of course get to see full full blown Peter Sellers when he appears in the end as Doctor Strangelove. But it's ironic if you could list a movie where someone said that. George C. Scott was funnier than Peter yeah. Sellers. Right. <laughs> I don't think anyone would believe you unless they've seen this film. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jack D. Ripper believes, believes in what he says very sincerely. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, a lot of bad policy and, and horrible things that happen in the world are done with complete sincerity, yeah. Uh You know, it's just, uh, and I think he sells it really well. He, he, I you know I love the quote this little this little phrase you know a little speech there where he says do you realize that the fluoridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plot we have ever had to face. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great line. Uh, he, he delivers it, it well. He he's not hamming. He doesn't ham for one second. You know with with this humor, it's all. And this played so wonderfully straight and hilarious.
2: He plays it almost introspectively that he's that he's having this conversation with himself. But Mandrake happens to be there. And, and sometimes he'll break that and go, and, and they'll have that dialogue. But uh, it's, it's almost as if, to me, he's having that conversation with himself.
1: No, there's real psychology with, with his character, you know? Um, I think that's the thing with a lot of comedies. We don't get that depth. But, you know, we can safely say that his madness comes f- not from nowhere, but from a, you know, a deep, irrational paranoia that... Honestly, if you look at our history, you know, it, it always seems part of the American psyche that there's always some sort of paranoia there that, you know, horrible events that you know often are, are, are a result of it. You know, the horrible events that take place in this story are a result from this irrational fear, you know, suggesting that the paranoia is, um, it's a horrible motivation for policy and it often is. You know? Well, think
2: about when it, was, when it was filmed and when it was released in 1964. We're coming out of World War II, out of the 50s and the Red Scare, you know, the Reds under the bed. And, and this yep. whole idea of communism, yeah, that is the root of all evil and that we have to contain it, which is the, the language that we used as, as a policy, you know, this yeah. language of containment. Which I think beautifully, by the way, goes back to something you said, Walt, which is the fact that the film also feels very claustrophobic to me. That it's it's doesn't take place other than those aerial scenes, uh, but everything takes place really really close together.
1: A lot of close-ups in this. A film. lot of close-ups. Lot maybe of it's just maybe it's me, but uh, you know, I think it adds to the claustrophobia. But uh, um, yeah, kind of piggybacking on what you said, Andrew. I mean, if you think about it, not really long before this film, this film was really recent. After you know, for the first time in in the history of human beings, we conceived of a way to instantly destroy ourselves. Right. <laughs> kill many people with great efficiency, you know? So when you think of it, I mean, it's insane that that's ever happened that, you know, and that's kind of the way technology is. I mean, you almost don't, I didn't ask to inherit social media, the kids, you know, we always get on the kids and stuff for social media, this, they're always on. So, well, who do you think handed it to to them? You know, the (laughs) the previous generation. So, you know, I think in this film, it's an existential fear. So horrible. Um, and the paranoia is real with, with Ripper, you know, it's so horrible that we cannot help, but And I'm talking about us now in our day and age, we can't help, but block it out from our daily thinking. Right. You know, we just can't help it. You know, I think Kubrick though is forcing us to, to think of it, you know, but think of it through humor, because I think some messages are best told through humor with a little bit of a, uh, you know, chocolate covered, if you will. So again, it goes back to the absurdity and the absurdity, um, it's absurd, but not unbelievable, I guess, you know? So, well,
0: I mean, I, I think
1: this movie, I think the movie would not be nearly as impactful if the fear was not somewhere within us. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I think, or if the leaders in this film were not so suggestive of real people in power. You know, it's, 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 it's only a slight exaggeration what we're watching in this film, <laughs> you know, of what can really happen.
2: And I think that if I'm correct, and, and my memory might be faulty, there's twice before the film begins where it says this is based on, not based on true characters. You know, that, that disclaimer that we read in, in novels and everything, uh, anything resembling is, is purely coincidental. Yep. Yep.
0: But we know, you know better what you're saying is, kind of it, of right. with the exception of ordering the attack... Ripper is not out of place among the folks in that war room around that table, uh, standing next to Buck Turgidson that they never have a scene, but I mean, he's not that. And like you said, Bill, his his paranoia is what's driving all of them. He flips it over one tiny nudge to the next level and he's not a raving lunatic, but, and yet when you have all these people in a room together with this same kind of mindset or, or, you know, you would imagine them in a room together, um, what's what makes it the most absurd is when someone who's not a military person has to deal with it. So for me, the scene when um, Merkin Muffly has to call Premier Kissoff on the phone and explain to him what happened, and you know, Kissoff is in his mistress's apartment, yeah. and Merkin, these are two non-military men, even though they're a president and a premier, he's saying, you know, one of our officers went a little, well, funny in the head. And, you know, that... That whole sort of uh, understatement of, of the situation. It, how do you say something that insane yeah. to someone? How do you tell them, look, we accidentally ordered nuclear annihilation?
2: But this is part of the <laughs> beauty of the film, too, because Kubrick sets up this scene by, when they can't hear one another, right? And you think, can you hear me now? Can you hear me? And, and they're, they're going back and forth, and they have this playful banter at first. So it's really prefacing all of that, that we don't hear one another.
0: Oh, but they still are, are locked into, like they said, just as the military folks are locked into the protocol, we see it time and time again. Can't call the White House, can't destroy right. a Coke machine. Can't, they're locked into the uh, diplomatic protocol. Well, I'm sorrier than you are. No, I'm sorrier than you are. You're not sorrier than I am. And so they're all, you know, in the middle of all this as the clock is winding down and they're just, they can't break the habits.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, for me, it's, I think, just this, an over, overarching part of the humor for me is is just the whole idea in this movie that it suggests that total annihilation, the end of humanity, could come, could possibly come, not because two countries have this, you know, uh, political whatever difference or, or, you know, various hostile acts that one, you know, one thing leads to another. In this movie, total annihilation is a result of Ripper's fear of water. (laughs) All right.
2: Yeah.
1: That's. that's, I mean, it's such great writing. The guy. The guy's afraid of water, um, which I think is interesting irony because the guy's you know this, you know this this uh, the machismo in him you know is just off the charts you know but when it comes down to it he's he's afraid of water and we're all going to die because of it.
2: <laughs> and yet we're, we're 70 or 80% made of water as he makes that, that <laughs> declaration, you know?
0: Well, and that'll, that'll give me a segue into the uncomfortable part of our discussion today, because he says it first got the idea after the physical act of love. Mm. And he said he, he, he was tired after making love with his wife <laughs> and, and it occurred to him that all this happened. And so, um, very clearly sex is, uh, a major part of this film. And, and again, it's, it's, it's odd that such sophomoric humor is, is layered on top of this. But um, this, this is where I always make the say, i said this to you guys before, that I think this is a film with a thesis. And the thesis is the fetishization of weaponry and military buildup becomes almost a sexual obsession to the point that these, these weapons literally procreate not only the mind of the humans, but the weapons that we produce. And so the scene, the film opens up, you know, with stock footage of planes refueling in midair set to the tune of romantic music. And you're watching it and you're thinking to yourself, Oh my gosh, (laughs) those planes are doing something. And, and it all goes from there. And so every, every moment of this film, if you really look at it this way is layered with the idea that behind it all, um, war is as much of an instinct of humans as sex is. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and um yeah I like those opening opening shots with the uh, the music that's, that's
1: such a kubrick thing you know like you can sort of predate 2001 you know with the uh the space ballet and all that just the uh this the interesting dichotomy of this this destructive machinery and the <laughs> the lovely uh, music playing in the background it's th- that in itself you can see the humor in that it's just right off the bat you're and it's it's hilarious and what struck me too i don't know i have no idea maybe you guys could shed some light on this just the interesting titles just uh looks like scrawl you know it's it's not typeface it's um it seems like it's hand handwritten or you know seemingly looks like handwritten titles yeah i, I don't, have, don't have any relevance whatsoever with that but uh I'm sure, I mean, there's not a frame in any Kubrick movie that's accidental, so I was wondering why he would make that choice.
2: And it's by somebody with poor handwriting, too. You know, that's what it looked like to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember, because I, I made note of that when I watched it again this week. I was like, wow, they couldn't get a budget to, to make the titles a little bit better, but obviously that's done on purpose.
0: Right, right.
2: But I don't know what to make of it.
0: Yeah, yep. all the money's in the weapons, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, and i, I want to go back to i know i don't want to um, go back to the whole idea of sex of course the name of the film is strange love um but just real quickly focusing on the character of mandate and ripper and this this is again um Kubrick, to me reinforcing his thesis but uh, a mandrake is a root mm-hmm. that's shaped like a man but if you if you take enough of it it was used as an aphrodisiac if you take too much it would kill you and he's playing across from General Jack the Ripper, which of course was a famous uh, serial killer in London who killed prostitutes. And in both characters, the one more benign than the other, you have sex and death uh, in the same in the same concept. One, sex and violent death, and with with hatred and misogyny, and the other just uh, you know a different kind. And so again, it's it's so subtle. But there it is, and and the characters that represent their names—Buck Turgidson, who's always—you know—he's really interested in the ladies. He comes up with the the mineshaft plan at the end, and strange love, you know, is that that bizarre blend of the Nazi ideology and the and American technology, and, and uh, I just uh, I just find it uh, astonishing that um, that that undercurrent actually played as well as it did in '64.
2: And don't don't discount Slim Pickens as Major King Kong. Co- uh, yeah, Major King Kong. You know, um, flying that B fifty two. You know, just listening to you, well, right now it reminds me more and more of a Thomas Pinchon novel. You know that we're 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 in this kind of absurd world with the especially with the names. Uh, it's you know it's Gravity's Rainbow before Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> and for those of you who have not read Gravity's Rainbow, please do.
1: Yeah, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but, but not really in this movie.
2: Right. <laughs> no, this right. not at all. It's a hell of a prop.
0: <laughs> it is. And and all of the characters, you know, the, the like I said, the, the Russian premier is with his mistress and uh, you know, um Turgesson is with his secretary, and then, you know, the the film ends and humanity is going to be forced to live underground while the while the nuclear fallout um dissipates for a hundred or so years, which I I don't think it was accurate, but it was for the film. And so the first thing they start thinking of is let's bring beautiful women down there. Mm-hmm. One, 100 women to every man, I believe was the ratio, something like that. And, uh, and then as soon as we do it, let's start building the weapons up so that we, we do not emerge inferior to the Russians. Right. Yeah. So. That
2: cycle all over again. Yeah. All yeah. the while, the Russian ambassador is taking secret pictures, right? <laughs> you know, with his, with his little camera,
1: <laughs> do you have yeah, a film in a film that's otherwise absence, absent absent of, of women you know it's right. it's interesting yeah
0: yeah there's one that the secretary and she yeah. appears in uh she's the centerfold that uh major kong is is reading in, in the playboy magazine in the cockpit yeah you yeah. know so here, here's the funny thing about slim pickens and we're talking about acting and you know slim pickens in any movie is slim pickens yeah know? He's a Slim Pickens character. You hire Slim Pickens. Um, and, and two things about him that were hilarious is, one, he was only given the parts of the script that he was in, and he wasn't told it was a comedy, so he just played it uh, Slim pickens And then um, I think one of the actors was talking to him uh, between takes and thought that he was just being a method actor and staying in character, and someone said, no, Slim talks like that. That's him. <laughs>
2: And the scene when he's, you know, it's, it's that scene that we always see when, when the Academy Awards are on, when he's on top of the bomb and he's going down and, you know, he's yahooing the whole way.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right to the end. So have you ever, I guess you guys say you haven't seen this since college, and I use it a bit in my classes, but it's interesting to me uh, when you see people watch this film who don't get it. Yeah which I think it's an easy, easy thing to miss. I mean, if you just turn this film on with no context, you would be wondering, you know what they, they seem to be being funny, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. And, and how do you take it? If someone said, uh, it, it's like, what, does what, what does a dog think we're doing when we're reading? <laughs> and so I think when someone watches this film with no understanding of, of, you know, the, the nuance of satire or, or the black idea of black comedy, they're trying to think what is this film just a bad war movie
1: yeah that's a good question no i mean he, uh, humor is not universal you know it's uh i think you have to have some prior knowledge to to get the humor in this movie it's it's you know I, it takes a, i think a pretty deep understanding of human nature and um a little bit of history and just the, the nature of power and politics so i you know, I don't think it's, uh, it's definitely for everyone. And, and It's not humor in the sense of, uh, I mean, I, there is some laugh out loud moments, but, you know, I think humor could also be just simply a kind of an inward appreciation of, of wit that doesn't necessarily force you to react with laughter. Um, and I think there's a lot of that, too, in this movie. Yeah, it's
2: also about the human comedy, which uh, a lot of people do not get. Uh, this whole idea that we, we, of life that we go through. But I, I think the the black and white, the, the, the idea that Kubrick chose to shoot it in black and white doesn't help that necessarily. Although I think it would have been a, a, a less, a less film if he had shot it in color. I think black and white helps it the law
1: Yeah. We were talking about that before, well, um, a couple of days ago, right? Um, yeah. It's interesting that he, he chose black and white. I mean, by 64 color was pretty standard. So yeah. it's, it's it's definitely an intentional choice and um we couldn't really come up with any real reason as to why he
0: would the only thing i can think of is it's kind of a documentary-ish thing um like like it he it, there's a lot of juxtapositions in this film you know we've already talked about sex and death we've talked about the serious and the comic tones you know underneath it and, and the black and white gives it a documentary feel but we're, it's a documentary of absurdity yeah and and yet there's so many real elements in it. I mean, "Pieces our profession is the actual motto, <laughs> I think, of the Air Force. Uh, yeah. And and there was the shots that the battle shots were, were purposely made to look like the footage coming back from Vietnam. And the I- ironic fact that even though you know that it's going to cause the end of the world, you're actually, part of you is rooting for that cockpit crew to succeed because we like them. We don't want to see them be destroyed. And so, I mean, the, the film is not... It's not a comfortable comedy. No.
2: Yeah, it isn't it isn't as as you both said, it it's not laugh out loud, funny. Uh, it, it's 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 a different kind of comedy.
1: Yeah. Intel it's an intellectual
2: it's, that, you know, that, that, yes, exactly right.
1: Intellectual comedy or
0: high comedy, if you will. Yeah. So um But there's high comedy that can be enjoyed without recognizing the nuance of it, I think. Uh and there's low comedy that, that has nuance as well. I, I think of Monty Python, but uh, to me, I'm wondering though, if, you, if you're just looking at this as a straight out comedy, you say to yourself, I'm going to turn on a movie to watch for entertainment and not think about, do you enjoy this film? Yeah. yeah.
2: I think if I had turned it on and, and had not seen it before or known anything about the director or anything, I would think as, as you said earlier, what, what the hell is going on here? What kind of, what am I watching? Mm-hmm.
0: yeah I remember and I think I said this to you Bill the other day I, I watched this first on a small black and white tv in, in in my room and I had no context I only knew I was a, I was a fan of Peter Sellers comedy but mostly back then um as as the Pink Panther in the Pink Panther films and so you have a very a certain expectation of Peter Sellers' style of sort of droll droll slapstick I guess and I turned this on and I, I just remember that I, I I don't think I got the political aspect of it but I did enjoy the scenes of that, that did, that do go over the top. Sellers, a strange love, Turgidson being Turgidson. Um, and I, I, I don't remember much of what I thought of it other than that, but I remember then seeing it again in the eighties in a, in a big movie theater and just uh, was blown away by it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find uh, it's tough to not laugh out loud with protect, uh, in particular, the scene where, um president uh muffley is on the phone with his russian counterpart you know just uh i think you mentioned this earlier walt uh you know it's it's just it's interesting his world leaders sort of small talking and you know it's like he speaks to the russian president you know about mass destruction like it's some (laughs) slight matter of inconvenience right Yeah. The idea that, that, you know, we're on the verge of total annihilation. We have one world leader who who is drunk and the other one, you know, seems more concerned about pissing him off, you know, and and disturbing him. (laughs) You know, uh, Dimitri, his name's Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. (laughs) (laughs) Premier kiss off. (laughs) (laughs) off. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, well, you know, how do you think I feel about it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> and you know the the um the the talks, the tension between the Russians and the Americans was was palpable back then. I mean, who 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 forgets the infamous you know Khrushchev banging his shoe on the table at negotiations, or the standoff in Cuba? And so, I mean, this is almost you know it took a long time for America to make Vietnam movies. There was a smattering of them, but uh, it was too raw after Vietnam, and so they didn't. But this is smack dab in the middle of um, you know, literally the brink of nuclear war. It was very brave right after the, to do this
1: right after, right after the Cuban missile crisis. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, it's, I was telling, I think I was telling Bill and I didn't uh, talk to you before this, Andrew, but um, the, the first test screening of the film, which had a different ending um, was put off because of the Kennedy assassination. And no. um, yeah. And, and there the end, the film ended with a pie fight between the Russians and the Americans in the war room. And uh, Merkin Muffley, the president, gets hit in the face with a pie, and Buck Turgeson yells, our gallant young president has been struck down in his prime.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: And uh, now I think for a lot of reasons, they opted not to go with the pie fight at the end, and I'm I'm glad they didn't. But uh, <laughs> that's how close it is to all the things that politically going on in the world.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Where do you it, it, just to change gears a little bit? Where do you rate this in in Kubrick's other films? Well, That's a good question.
1: Yeah, I, for me, it's it's right up there. You know, it's it's amazing how diverse he was. Yeah, as a filmmaker. You know, I mean, he just really tried to explore, you know, just various different things. You just he did not repeat himself at all. Right. <laughs> um, but it's still, it's still Kubrick. You know, when you watch this, you can just feel his direction. You know, just his scenes are just so well composed, and he he loves the shot where you have just a an ex- exquisitely framed scene where there aren't any cuts at all. Um, but kind of like what you know, in a in a different way, kind of like what Wells did. But I would put it up there for me. I mean, really close to the top. Two thousand one's another favorite of mine. Yeah. To
0: follow up that that question, because Bill, you had said something about Kubrick's filmmaking the other day. I can't remember exactly, uh, but that he was like, like um, criticized maybe for being his characters too cold, too inapproachable. Or something. Oh, yeah, I've heard it said that he's his films are cerebral,
1: like they're they're totally cerebral, and there's it lacks and um, heart, you know, and emotion but um
0: well but know. here's a notion i, I, I want to i'm sorry not good. I, I just want to ask because aside from um a clockwork orange which is a film I, I personally don't care for at all i find some of the performances in that film are unwatchable i love the idea that it goes anyway his films hold up remarkably well though yeah. even when elements of them could be dated i mean you could look at the the you know the the tech in 2001 and think ha how quaint and yet the film really the special effects and all really work still very well the dark themes of this film um full metal jacket still holds up as a as a war film and not just a vietnam war film and even the shining which you know again stephen king hates it but holds up to me as a horror film you know long after it came out yeah although i had I like- to i had to uh, reconcile myself with the ending a lot because i I liked Halloran in the book. But anyway. Uh, I think you know,
2: you're right. With the with the possible exception of Eyes Wide Shut, which is ironic you know, ironically his last film. Uh, I think all of his films hold up very well.
0: So I, I've never seen that uh film. And I, I don't I I know very little about it. I know it's, it's Cruz and Kidman, right? And it's
2: Yeah, and it's it's again this the themes of it's very sexual and um, you know, it, I think it has a lot of things that are great about it, but it, it's also um, a troubling film in a number of ways. My wife and I went to see it in the theaters when it first came out. And as we were leaving, everybody was just saying, what the hell did we just watch? What was that? And, you know, much like we just said earlier about this film.
0: Did Kubrick direct Lolita?
2: He did. The first one.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With... um Amazing. Uh, James and, Mason, okay.
2: Uh, Shelley Winters, yeah.
0: Okay. And, uh, and I've never seen that either, uh, yeah. but I don't know how that holds up. But I mean, we, we, we seem to get a lot of this, uh, again, he's, he's sort of exploring these themes, but all of them, if, even in, um, in The Shining, uh, that they're, they're uncomfortable things that you have to wrestle with in the film, from the film. You know, you're never going to come out of a Kubrick film, in my opinion, um, at ease with what you've just seen.
2: No and these are not feel good movies of the year
0: yeah <laughs> even a yeah, he was an uncompromising,
1: he uncompromising director you know he had his vision yeah. and uh he he was not much of a collaborator in terms of uh you know uh producer oversight and what have you he he his vision was the movie he was you know, obviously a classic auteur but um i agree i think his films hold up really well and as i said earlier, this one is a great example of that and yeah. what he does that makes it so timeless i mean i think the subject matters has a lot to do with it but he was you know his style of directing was just never it never resembled the period you know <laughs> there's like kubrick style of directing and uh you know periods change and whatever you know conventions of the decade they they change from decade to decade but he was not in the slightest bit uh influence i don't think from you know for what you know the, the ebbs and flow of the the industry mm-hmm. uh, oh we forgot to mention a uh, full metal jacket yeah is another he doesn't have a tremendous body of work he did not make as many films as you would think a director who spans whatever
2: and i think he didn't he come in in the middle of paths to glory he had to take over that project or or something like that
1: yeah yeah and he directed um He disowned it, but he directed Spartacus.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: Um, He was more or less a director for hire for that film. Um, And it was more or less Kirk Douglas's movie as producer. So he never really acknowledged it as his movie.
2: Uh, One of the things that, that strikes me is two things. One, he, he, if I remember correctly, he asked for absolute secrecy on set. So people would not be able to talk about the the film as as they were filming it. And then the second is the the allegiance that the actors had to him, even after the fact. If you hear Matthew Modine speaking about him even today, it's with complete awe. Even though he he would drive his his actors to do some extraordinary things, and by extraordinary, not necessarily you know mentally you know he broke uh, uh oh, who's the the woman who plays uh, uh torrance's wife in the shining effort shelly devol yeah uh, i mean the stories about what what he did with her to get her to to get that performance are really heartbreaking
0: Yep, yeah but he you know he he also wrangled some pretty tough actors in his day i mean douglas was not a pushover That's right. uh Jorsey scott was infamously volatile right. and yep. and hated that I, I and I'm not sure if this is true. This may maybe an apocryphal story, but that he told Scott to do two takes: do a serious take and do an over-the-top take. Mm-hmm. And when Scott found out he was using the over-the-top takes, he was he, he went after him. But in the end, looked back on it and said it was one of his favorite performances. Yeah. So right. um yeah. yeah, yeah. You know that takes. I mean, you know, to me, Kubrick was never an imposing man. He was not a huge man or or, right. or anything. But he he really. I mean, when you you look at the people, James Mason, that he he. Worked with his career. These are strong, strong people.
2: He got, yeah. he may have gotten Nicholas, you know, uh, Nicholson's best performance. Uh, certainly one of his best performances with the Shiny. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: No, he was an un- uncompromising artist, you know, and uh, he had his vision. That was it. And he obviously wasn't um, intimidated or he just had, you know, it, we've talked about this before, you know, just the, um, you know the artist who's going to accomplish their goal no matter what, no matter who they yeah. hurt in the process, and <laughs> the art is everything, and that seems to be the case for.
2: Yeah, he's one of those directors that, uh, the very few who are still able to keep their independence and yet work in that the big movie system. Yeah,
1: yeah, and he yeah, was uh, he he's just he pretty much was based in um in England, right? He yeah he left left the the states. He's from New York, I believe. From New York, just, I uh, think. Yeah, and he just said, you know what, I'm in. He just he, I guess, it took a while between projects because, uh, you know, com- commercial, um, you know, blockbusters weren't necessarily his agenda.
0: Right, right. No, but his films are not small, quiet films. They're—they're they're big right. budget. They're large. I mean, some of them, but most of them are large films. When I mean, you think about Barry Lyndon or, yeah. or The Shining. And he always, uh, you know, with, with 2001, here he is dwelling in this really opulent sci-fi epic with, with all these special effects. And I mean, if you watch The Shining, there's some incredible sound work in that film and, and some pretty innovative use of, I think, the steady cam shots. Mm-hmm. That So he's, he evolved as a filmmaker in terms of technology, but, but always stayed true to, I think, his style. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: So, Strange Love's budget was about one point eight million. Uh, you know, very, uh, almost a shoestring budget, really, even by I think nineteen sixty four standards. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Does it say, or do you know what it did at the box office? I don't. I don't remember first if...
2: weekend, I just know the first weekend it took in a little over eleven thousand dollars. I believe. Really?
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I bet people just didn't know what to make of it.
2: Yeah. I think right now, if I remember correctly from the internet movie base it's worldwide grossed
0: over 9 million or something, you know? Darn. Wow. Well, which is a good return for 64, but, uh, even so you would think, I mean, again, with the stars of this caliber, uh, you
2: know, but I think that exactly goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think there's a lot of people who don't know what to do with this film or certainly didn't know what to do with it when it came out. But I, I still think that that's true today.
0: And it seems to like like as you guys said you, you hadn't watched it right since since for for twenty years it falls off the radar no pun intended uh, and, and yet it, it, we don't know why it does because when you watch this film you just like this it, it's always a revelation to me I've seen this film probably thirty times and it's always yeah. a revelation to me that uh, that how well it works. Well,
2: do you think that, that that this is a a film that lends itself to a, a classroom setting first so that you can have a, a kind of guide to take you through it through a film class or, you know, of course, depending on the viewer. I
0: I would say, uh, yeah, it would depend on the viewer, the age, because, you know, as Bill can tell you in, in, in teaching the film classes, one of the great pleasures is bringing films to students that they probably hadn't seen on their own. I mean, if you can imagine someone saying, I've never seen the Godfather, I've never seen Unforgiven. Um, And this film, you know, I can guarantee you, none of my kids have seen it. And, and some of them, It's like when we read Waiting for Gatto or anything, when I talk about existentialism, some of these kids, it blows their minds and others are just like, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. So um, do you find more of them get it or more of them don't get it? I don't know. It's hard to say. I I just think, again, this is not a film. Like if you're, you know, thumbing through Netflix or something or whatever streaming platform it may be on that you stop on. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well, this is a good. Go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry, yeah, I think satire might be a, an older person's, uh, I don't know, something that an older person might enjoy more.
0: But, but this film embraces the cynicism and sarcasm that is, is pretty fashionable. Yeah, that's true. But
2: perhaps in a way that, that younger viewers today might not appreciate or get.
0: Could be. I, mean, I, um, think
2: one, I think one of the things that works well for this film, and this may be a debatable point, is the fact that it's 95 minutes. I think any longer, and it would really test your patience. <laughs>
0: That's true. That's true.
2: So I think it's exactly the right length. Uh, and the economy with which he tells this story is, is almost done perfectly. There are no, at least if I, I would say right now, but I reserve the right to change my mind. There are no wasted moments in this film, as we see in some other films.
0: I would agree, yeah. and and it's the structure of it. I mean, because there's a, there's a moment where the you know they're they're trying to call the bombers back, and they think they've got them all back, and there there are moments of genuine nuclear tension. Yeah, in the film, and then when you think about that, at the very end, uh, just just when we see you know the, the the most nightmarish scenario coming true, it ends with Slim Pickens riding a bomb down, and then Doctor Strangelove mm-hmm. standing up out of his wheelchair and yeah. wrestling with himself. And so you you just left a uh, kind of a wreck by the end of it all because you're like I was really tense and now I'm just watching the craziest stuff happen. <laughs> I don't know how he pulls it off. So, uh,
2: but he does. It's it, it, it is certainly one of. Is this on AFI's list of top one hundred?
0: It is. I think now and some of them um, on one list. And I was looking between Entertainment Weekly, AFI, and uh, there's another one. But it's number two comedy, uh, top 13 on the top 50, wow. and in the top 20, I think, on the list of 100, I think. Yeah. I okay. think. Don't hold me to that. But uh, it's, it, it's prestigious.
2: So I wonder then if, again, this goes back to an earlier point, because I'm really interested in audience and reception. So I wonder if this is really a film that is for the critics and, and by the critics, I mean, not the, the reviewers of newspapers, but, you know, the film aficionados more than it is for, say, a general public. And I'm not trying to say that in any kind of highbrow, lowbrow way. I just right. think it, perhaps this is a film that needs a certain sensibility.
0: It would be interesting to, like like all films, I think, should be seen in a movie theater with an audience. I mean, um, you know, here we're in the middle of the pandemic, but um, there's something about that shared energy of, of film, whether it's tension or laughter or fear, that is infectious. And I would be interested in seeing, if you took a bunch of people, you know, 300 people and put them in a movie theater that that hadn't seen this film before, what how they would react to it. I, that would be... That would be a lot of fun to see yeah. a great sociology experiment, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: this film has something to say, obviously there's a message to it. Um, and I think, um, most people do not go to the movies to, you know, to learn or it's, you know, it's, it's entertainment first. And if it right. is some sort of, um, whatever, some, if, if the film has some sort of thematic power, that's good too. But, mm-hmm. um, I would say sadly that most people probably wouldn't find this
2: tremendously entertaining in our day and age. <laughs> well, hopefully that's why they listen to our podcast and then, you know, tried to say, well, what do other people think?
0: Oh, <laughs> it's right. interesting because like, you know, we, we see directors today that are, that, that they don't necessarily ape other directors style, but there's elements that you see. And I'm wondering who's the most Kubrickian director working today. Is there, is there someone that, that does this sort of thing with this, challenging, probing, daring approach.
1: No no one comes to mind for me.
2: I can't say, I, I can't think of anyone. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, I'd have to really think about that.
0: Yeah, I would too. And I, so, I mean, I guess you could, you know, again, these these are epithets that are overused, but he's yeah. both timeless and original uh, right. in, in that sense. I think and, tar- and
2: the whole nature of filmmaking has changed so much that, there are, there are undoubtedly some great filmmakers out there that are young filmmakers that are, that are doing something highly original and thought-provoking. But yeah. I think largely, and this might be my own cynicism, most of the commercial successes are, are you know, warmed over plots that we've seen before.
0: Yeah, or some sort of intellectual
1: property that...
2: Right, right, right.
0: Yeah. I, just, I just, like I said, I, I see Keaton in Spielberg's action films. I see Chaplin in Wes Anderson's framing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't, ever, I don't see, maybe I, like you said, I have to think about it. I don't see a lot of
1: Kubrick.
2: Yeah.
1: In there. It was a one-off. I think Kubrick's a one-off.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, It'd be interesting as, to juxtapose the American, uh, how he's influenced American directors and as opposed to European directors.
0: Be interesting. I'm going to have to do some research, see what I can dig up on that. But uh, we would, as the classroom critics, encourage everyone to see not only this film but all of Kubrick's films—the body of work. As Bill said, it's not enormous, so it's it's very doable to to watch the films of this man and just uh, you know form your own opinion. Yeah, absolutely, yep. I think uh, Kubrick is universally
1: admired by film buffs and film students, or what have you, but maybe not as imitated. Is perhaps let's say yeah. uh, Coppola or what have you, or uh, Scorsese I think Scorsese might be the one of the most imitated auteurs in history.
2: yeah, and of course, where would Scorsese be without John Cassavetes? you know
1: <laughs> right yeah, exactly yeah so is it, is this the first Kubrick film that we've analyzed?
0: Oh, absolutely. We didn't do the shining, did we?
2: no i don't think so
0: all right i feel good that we're getting to the point that we can't remember all the movies we covered i think that's uh we we have a larger body of work than stanley kubrick though i I don't think we've had the influence that he he has uh no i don't i think you're right bill i think this is the first
1: yeah yep and there are others i think that we should uh
2: yeah bring
1: up but
0: um so stay tuned stay tuned So we, uh, we are the Classroom Critics, and again, I'm Walter Freeman, being joined by William Ivers, Andrew Martino, and we were discussing Dr. Strangelove today. Uh, uh, Bill, you usually have a sign-off where you encourage folks to check us out. I'll turn it yeah, to well, you. you know, if you want to uh, check us out on iTunes, uh, leave a comment,
1: maybe perhaps a thought on what we discussed today. We like to keep film discussions rolling, and uh, also on Facebook, uh, look us up, uh, Classroom Critics. And uh, let us know, I guess, what you think of uh, Dr. Strangelove and perhaps any suggestions for, uh, for future mo- movies. We're, we're open, definitely open to suggestions. So, um, yeah, well, it was great, guys. Thanks for uh, chatting about this. And uh, thanks for hosting, Walt, and uh, guiding us through. Because once again, <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it. And yeah. uh, Aaron, Andrew as well. So yeah.
0: thank you, oh, wise one. <laughs> My pleasure. I'm glad you guys got to reconnect with this film. It's one of my favorites.
1: All right. Walt Freeman and uh, Andrew Martino. I'm Bill Ivers, and uh, take care, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.